You're listening to Liberty Buzzard with Dustin Hammett and Thomas Umstead Jr. Episode 32. I'm Dustin Hammett. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. Welcome to the show where we have an interesting conversation about a fascinating topic every single day. Well, maybe not every single day, but at least a couple times a week. Uh, in between shows, Thomas and I, we uh, we like to bat forth articles that we find on the internet that we think will be interesting topics of conversation. And more and more these days, uh, we've been talking about the future and what the future looked like, like a couple futurists and uh, like science fiction and all that kind of jazz, just because it's super interesting. And uh, I found an article, I think it was the Harvard Business Review, titled Three Kinds of Jobs That Will Thrive as Automation Advances. And so I threw that at him. He read it, and then he threw a video back at me by uh, a YouTube uh, guy named CGP Gray, which I'm a big fan of now, and uh, describes about how bots learn and how machines learn. And it's super fascinating and simultaneously scary. And uh, Terminator will one day be regarded not as science fiction, but as a documentary. And uh, like, 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 people will get confused about the time frames because it was so accurate because Skynet's coming for us all. But yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm really fascinated by all this stuff. And I sit there and I think we all find ourselves on the Facebooks or the Tweetbooks or the YouTubes or, or whatever. And, uh, and you find you're like, oh, like YouTube's terrible. You get on there, you watch one video. The next thing you know, five hours of your life have gone by and you don't even know where you are. I mean, you just keep on watching videos. And, uh, the CGP, CGP Gray video talked about that, discussed how bots are sitting there constantly watching you and their little bot. Little, I love his animation, by the way. His little little robots are just sitting there watching you and feeding you more videos to watch because, of course, YouTube and the Googles want to keep you on their website for as long as humanly possible, so that they can so they can advertise to you and make money. So yeah, it's it's super interesting and also scary because all the stuff that he points out, I'm like, oh yeah, I am a bot slave because every time I go on the internet, they're just sitting there watching me, learning from me. One day they will control me. What do you think about that, Thomas? So I think that um, when it comes to jobs and the destroying of jobs, that we give far too much blame to trade. So if you look at the jobs in this country, did you know that what country is the number one manufacturer in the world? It's the United States. In fact, since like the 1980s, I think we've doubled the amount of manufacturing that we do. Now that's measured in dollars, what politicians measure manufacturing on and why they're all up in arms is the fact that there are fewer manufacturing jobs. So while we've doubled our output, we've reduced the overall number of people working in the factories. And you're like, well, how do you do that? How do you double your output while we're reducing your headcount? Well, I'll tell you how we used to do it. We used to do it through efficiencies and stopwatches and making things more efficient, but that's not how we're doing it now. Now we're doing it by using automation. We're replacing the humans with robots. But in the American worldview, technology is good, and you can't blame technology. And so it's much easier to blame the tiny fraction of jobs that are moving over to China rather than the massive number of jobs that are being automated away. And I will say, I experienced this. I automated myself out of a job. So when I first, uh, (laughs) one of the places I worked, when I first got there, you know, every day I left and there's a huge pile of work left undone on my desk because it was just so much to do. And 
there wasn't a lot of systems. And as I worked there, I built systems and I developed software that replaced a lot of the functions of my job until finally, when I was at the very end of while I was there, I had 15, maybe 30 minutes worth of work to do every day. So what used to be this massive pile had been reduced down to 15 or 30 minutes of work because tasks like sending an email I had software that would customize that email based off of who I was sending it to. I had pre-written email templates, and what used to take an hour now took 30 seconds. And when you do that a handful of times through you know various tasks of your job, suddenly you're like, why am I even needed? Why is a human needed in the loop? It's not like this is a missile that's going to destroy somebody. And it, it really made me kind of question, it's like, gosh, how is it as a human that I add value? Because a lot of the sorts of things that I do as a marketer and as a manager can be better done with software than they can be done by me. And that's that's a very humbling thought. And <laughs> it's kind of a scary thought. And this Harvard article acknowledges that. And it's hard to see the future. So imagine it's 1750. And Dustin, you and I are farmers in rural Pennsylvania. And somebody is like, hey, you know, with these new farming equipment, uh, all of our farming jobs are going to be destroyed. And we're like, well, gosh, what are we going to do if we can't farm? There was no way that somebody in 1750 could imagine making lattes, like having a job making a latte. Like the existence of that was so far away from their perception, there was no way to even imagine it. It's like, yes, they drank coffee, but the idea of having somebody make you custom coffee, just the dots don't connect. And I do have faith that what technology takes away, technology gives, and humans find a way to be busy. And working on the earth is what we're here to do, and we'll find ways to do it. But it is interesting that the students in high school today, the students in school today, they are going to be doing jobs that likely don't exist now and won't exist when they retire. So like the most important skill, I think, is the skill to learn quickly something new, because that's the biggest advantage humans have over the machines. We're able to quickly learn something entirely different. And Dustin, what are your thoughts? So uh, you go back to the, the article. It says three kinds of jobs that will thrive as automation advances. And uh, it, it goes back to what you were saying about automation and rote tasks. Anything that can easily be done over and over and over again, the same way a machine is going to be far better to, uh, able to do than a human being will. So these these mass lines of factories that uh, used to have a bunch of people and used to be huge employers are now, as, 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 as time goes on, as, as uh, technology gets better and cheaper, are going to be replaced by uh, machines instead of human beings because you know they're cheaper they don't require health insurance et cetera et cetera we've discussed that before so so yeah but the I guess the big question is um, where will humanity earn a living once all the rote tasks have been uh, assumed by machines by computers by machines robots what have you and the article and I think it's pretty spot on there goes goes to say that any any job that requires human interaction, um, that requires um, creativity in a large scale, creativity beyond what an AI can do, that's 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 where human beings are going to go to. So um, maybe that means that you know we have a flurry a, a flourishing of art beyond what we needed, and it's an interesting thought. Um, 
I was watching a video a while back, and I can't remember who it was. I think it was Sargon of Akkad. It was one of the uh, Dave Rubin uh, interviews that he did where uh, he was posed the question, what about uh, a basic income? Do you think we'll ever have a time for where we'll have a basic income, um, which is just another way of saying an allocation of resources. Everybody gets this allocation of resources regardless of what work you do, and this is now a human right. Um, and I, th- I think we will be there eventually, um, where you could essentially live your entire life doing almost nothing and you will be given subsistence because uh, we will be able to produce in an automated level so well that everybody's basic needs will be met. And uh, so that's the big question is when there is no further need to labor. And I mean labor in the classical sense where you have a hammer in your hand and you're driving in nails or you're digging a hole or you're digging a ditch. When machines have completely assumed those roles and there's no further need to labor at that point, it, it could be it could be assumed that our basic needs are met and we're we're producing enough resources that we can produce enough resources for every individual and allocate those recourse, resources efficiently to every individual on this planet. And I think that's you know, way beyond our lifetimes, Thomas. But uh, I, I think I think it's in within the realm of possibility. And so when we get there, what do humans do? There's still going to be need to do something. Um, do we move beyond capitalism? I don't know. Maybe we do. You know, maybe that's when maybe that's when communism will truly be uh, be a thing. Is when there's no further need to labor, and all we can all we have to do is sit around and uh, be artsy and play guitar, and like the Roman nobility used to do back in the day, and, and just think about stuff. And uh, maybe that's when we push into space. I don't know. We're getting out there, but uh, but yeah, I think I've droned on a little bit too long. That those are my thoughts about what automation means in the future of humanity and just kind of where, where my brain takes me. What do you think, Thomas? So uh, to understand, you know, what are people going to do in the future when we have this, you know, army of robot slaves that do the things that we do now for us? I think one uh, thing to look at is what's called the diamond water paradox. It's an economic paradox. And it is all about the question, why is it that diamonds are more valuable than water? If you don't have water, you die. And yet diamonds are a thousand times, a million times more valuable ounce for ounce than water. When you can live your entire life and never interact with the diamond and live a happy, fulfilled life. So why is it that diamonds are more valuable? And part of the reason why diamonds are more valuable than water is that water is only valuable until you have enough of it, right? So if you need a gallon a day to live, once you've had that first gallon, that second gallon's far less valuable. But the other reason why diamonds are more valuable, and the more important one for this discussion, is that they're scarce. And what we're seeing, we're already seeing this in uh, our economy now. It used to be what was scarce was food. Everyone was kind of on the edge of starvation, and your entire life revolved around the growing, gathering, and eating of food. Food's not really scarce, especially in the United States. We export food. We grow far more food than we will ever need here. We ship food all over the world. And so what is it that people do all day if they're not growing food? And the food-making jobs were already automated. The the machines came for those jobs a long time ago. And if you still have a food-making job, good on you. That's very rare. Uh, So 
we can kind of project into the future that it will be something kind of like that. And I think the scarce thing, especially moving forward, is humanity, that human element of your job. It's, which is interesting because that was what in the 20th century was taken away from every job. So let's go back to the 19th century. You're a blacksmith and you're making horseshoes. Somebody's brings in their horse and it, you know, is hurt and through a shoe and you're treating the horse. You're humanly interacting with that person and then you craft a custom horseshoe just for that um, person's horse. And you've had this human moment. And in the 20th century, instead, your son got a job in a horseshoe factory where you made horseshoes of preset sizes. And, and you're able to make so many more horseshoes so much faster. It was cheaper to make you know, a million horseshoes in each size. And then you come in, you take a picture of the horse, horse's hoof or look at it. And you're like, oh, you're a size five. I don't know what horseshoe sizes, how they work, but let's just imagine a horse is size five, and then you put a, a pre-manufactured size five um, shoe on it, and they're off. And maybe there's no human interaction hardly at all. That human element of the job was extracted. And during the 20th century, humans were asked to act like robots, especially in a factory condition. All I do is put this widget inside of this socket over and over and over again. There's no humanity. There's no creativity. There's no thinking. There's no questioning. There's no asking why. And those kinds of jobs are what the machines are doing. And what it's allowing us to do as we move forward is to be more human in our work. And the sorts of things the machines will never be able to do is that intangible humanness. So sure, a machine can play chess, but beating a machine isn't as satisfying as beating a human because there's something about interacting with other humans that's special, right? There's a reason we choose most of the time when people play chess, they choose to play against other humans, even though they can play against a machine who's right at their level all the time. As they get better, the machine gets better. And yet we still prefer to play with humans a lot. And I think that's very telling. And what the, and that's kind of what this article from the Harvard Business Review was talking about. The kinds of jobs that are going to flourish are jobs where you're coaching or you're creating or you're composing. It's that art. It's that um, kind of magic almost that humans have with them, that, that supernatural element, the breath of the divine that the machine isn't going to have. And as you lean in on that, um, that is where you will be safe from the machines coming from your job or coming for your job. So as you were talking, Thomas, I was thinking back to the video you sent me the CGP Gray video. And in that video, he discusses the human brains and synapses and how uh, scientists and doctors uh, who are studying human brains, they might be able to understand what one individual synapse does, but the it's the interaction among the billions of synapses or millions or however many there are up in that, in that little uh, piece of meat in between your ears. It's, it's understanding how they cooperate that creates the computer that is the human brain that is completely beyond us. I mean, we just can't understand it. You know, it, it goes beyond uh, the dimensional mathematics that we, that we, or science that we know. And, and then he goes on and he talks about these, these bots and how, you know, they're created with, you know, ones and zeros in code, if then code that uh, is, is, is really pretty rudimentary and simple um, and the programmers create bots that uh, try to do things, and it creates teacher bots, and it creates other types of bots. And these bots eventually start creating themselves. And one of the things that stood out to me was 
one of the things he mentioned on in the video was that these individual bots, I don't think he said this expressly, but this is what stood out. These individual bots almost start to act like synapses in the fact that we know what the individual bots do, but all of a sudden the bots creating the bots creating the bots and we and they start getting good at these tasks that we're asking them to do, but we don't understand how or we don't understand why. So essentially these bots are becoming synapses and they're becoming brains. And so it's it's kind of it's interesting and it's scary and I think this is you know the singularity that uh, we all that we all fear as as, as humans in uh, in the science fiction context. And, and real quick for our listeners who don't know what the singularity is, what is the singularity? So I'm going to say what I think the singularity is, and you can correct me on whatever the finer points uh, I know. The singularity is uh, you know the the Skynet moment when. Uh, machines gain consciousness to the point where they can be creative and make decisions and they essentially become uh, conscious sentient beings just like a human being. Did I, did I get it right? Yeah, that's, that's close. Another way I've heard of it described is when machines are able entirely on their own to build more advanced machines, then suddenly there is this like chart that goes basically straight up where then those more advanced machines make even more advanced machines. And then we have self-aware super machines that, you know, in the science fiction context, take over the world and, you know, become our, our new masters, Skynet, iRobot, etc. Yeah. All that kind of stuff, all that good stuff. So I guess uh, the, the point I was driving at is that when this singularity happens and, and all of a sudden machines are not only creative, but maybe they're creative in a way that we never can be. And then all of a sudden you start questioning the nature of humanity. <laughs> that stuff starts getting real scary real fast. And man, so God forbid that uh, the singularity actually occurs and that machines can be creative because that really makes you to question the nature of humanity. And our um, unless we can transfer our consciousness into the machines themselves, which I'm sure we'll try to do, and all of a sudden we can live eternally. Um, but that it really kind of questions the, uh, makes you question the, the nature and the future of humanity as we are right now. Another point I wanted to bring up was you, you started talking about machines and machinery and technology in a historical sense. And um, something that just kind of popped into my head was the cotton gin. Uh, for those of you who remember American history from, uh, you know, high school, if you went to high school here in the great United States of America, you know that Eli Whitney was the inventor of the cotton gin and that few people don't actually remember or realize that Eli Whitney was a uh, abolitionist, as I recall. An abolitionist is someone who wanted to abolish slavery and he invented the cotton gin and thought this is things great where this thing's going to work so well that we will be able to get rid of slavery. It actually had the exact opposite effect. The cotton gin worked so well that it increased the demand for slaves and slave labor by uh, magnitudes. I can't even say exactly what the magnitude is, but by magnitudes, it actually increased the need for slaves. So it had the opposite effect. So I'm not necessarily worried about uh, machines taking over car jobs because I think there will always be something that uh, will require labor somewhere, that will require humanity somewhere because God knows I do not like getting on the phone and placing a call and talking to a machine. I despise it. I think most human beings do. I will pay extra to be able to talk to a mom and pop shop somewhere who, when I call, 
I know that a human being is going to answer the phone and I can interact with a human being and not have to, you know, press zero multiple times just in the hopes of talking to a human beings. And Thomas, I'll just put this out there. Sometimes in those big companies, you finally get to what you think is a human being and you start talking to them, but it's almost like you're talking to a machine just because <laughs> they are so rote. So, so yeah, I think I'm kind of petered out on that thought. Uh, I'm going to toss it back to you, Thomas. So a couple of thoughts. One, let's hope that the machines take some of our jobs because at 1.84 births per woman, which is the current U.S. fertility rate, we're going to need them to because our population is going to be shrinking and the population of a lot of the world is shrinking. The fertility rate, if you look at a graph of it, it's like it's fallen off of a cliff. So in 1950, the world fertility rate was 5.05 births per woman, according to some website called ourworldanddata.org. And in 2015, which is our most recent uh, year to have data, it's 2.49 live births per woman. So it's dropped in half uh, over the last 65 years that we have data. And the trend is down. It's, it's down almost every year from the year before. I mean, it's just, we don't know what the floor is of the birth rate. So we're likely going to see a shrinking population across the world. And we're already seeing a shrinking population in a lot of countries. Uh, a lot of the Western wealthy countries are shrinking in their population, or they will be. Uh, we've had the advances of science and technology have allowed older people to live longer. So the total population hasn't started shrinking yet, but it's getting older. And often less productive because, you know, somebody who's 90 years old isn't likely working in a factory anymore. So they're um, they're not a part of the labor labor force. So that labor force is shrinking. And the more older people you have relying on younger people to provide for them, the more you need young robots to <laughs> pick up the slack. And so this actually may be exactly what we need in order to kind of survive the coming crisis of the graying of America, the graying of China, the graying of Jap Japan. And another thing, and this is just a speculation, is that perhaps as we get this greater amount of automation, it will allow us to have more leisure again. When they've studied hunter-gatherer societies, they only spent like 20 hours a week working. And the other time, they were just kind of hanging out. And the more technology you have, the more you tend to work. When we added automobiles, before we had automobiles, the typical commute in, the, in London, if I'm remembering this correctly, was about 15 to 20 minutes. Then they added the, the metro, and then they added automobiles. And the typical commute, did it get shorter because suddenly people have cars? No, people moved farther away from their offices. <laughs> and the uh, commute has stayed about the same. Humans have had the same commute regardless of the travel technology. When we added all of these automation devices to the home, things like washer machines, for instance, it didn't actually reduce the amount of time women spent washing clothes. It just meant that they washed clothes more often. So we have cleaner clothes now than we had before, but women still spent the same amount of time. In fact, there is this phenomenon where you can actually automate something too much where people don't want to do it. So in the 50s, they created a cake mix where all you had to do was add water and it wasn't successful. 1950s women or 1960s women didn't like the idea of it being that easy. Baking a cake for their family had to be hard or it didn't have meaning and had to have some challenge. And so they made a change to the cake mix where they required you to add eggs and oil, which they totally could have had, you know, powdered eggs and oil in the mix. And they did originally. But when they took it out and suddenly you're required to add two eggs and some oil, that was just enough labor to make it. 
um, to rationalize it. And so uh, now it still feels like I'm baking a cake uh, for my family. And this change of potentially having more leisure may be a good thing. It allows us to, you know, live happier, more relaxed lives. What's what I see though, is that the leisure is very dis, um, unevenly applied. So you have the people who know how to make the machines and those people are working like crazy. You talk to a software developer and they're working and they're expected to work 40, 50, 60, 80 hours a week. And all the other ones are too, because there's just not enough work for them to do. Whereas a lot of other people are struggling to find a part-time job and they have a lot of leisure time and they prefer to do more work. And that, I don't know if uh, that's solvable, the uneven distribution of leisure. (laughs) So um, overall, I'm optimistic though. I think this future is going to be good, but it's going to be different. And it's, and I think that this is something that's important for us to talk about. And we shouldn't just like, oh, the future is a surprise. There's no way to know that this was coming. I don't think that's true. I think that if you study history and if you pay attention with what's going on around you, you can be prepared and you can be the person who's skating to where the puck is headed rather than where the puck is now. Uh, And the final story of this, when I was in school, I went to university in 2004 and the University of Mary Harden Baylor still had a dark room and it was teaching students how to develop film in the photography degree and, and department. And I was like, this is so stupid. You're not skating to where the puck is heading. Digital photography is going to completely replace film photography. And now the film photography companies no longer even make film cameras. So if you went to school when I went to school, which is only 10 years ago, um, Actually, a little more than 10 years ago. I'm getting old. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) I'm having an existential crisis over here. Um, It's now a completely useless skill because you can't even buy a film camera, even if you wanted to use those skills. Our university did a bad job of seeing where the puck was headed. I think it's possible to do more. And keep listening to the show. We're going to keep discussing the future and where things are headed. So I think I'll, I'll wrap it up here, Thomas, by saying I think you brought up a very good point. And something I have to remind myself of is we kind of always find us well, – I don't know what it is about uh, science fiction and dystopia. It's like uh, utopias don't sell that well, but dystopias, man, people just like to get in there. And it's just dramatic. And you know whether it's uh, – what's the one with the, the Mockingbird and Mockingjay? I can't remember what the title is. Hunger Games. Uh, my kids liked it. Hunger Games, that's the one. Um, and you have all these uh, teenager dystopias that have popped up uh, amongst the vampire and zombie stories. But, uh, yeah, I mean, even the zombie stories are dystopias. You know, a, a virus takes over and kills humanity and causes us our dead to eat, eat our faces off. So there's always this, uh, this dystopian fear of the future. And I think it's directly related to fear of the unknown in your, your basic human conscious. And fear of something that is different because we want to be comfortable. Our natural want is for things to be now uh, in, up into perpetuity just because we always want things to remain the same. So you have, you know, especially the old timers, we all, you know, the, the cliche old guy down at the barber shop, and, oh, the world's going to hell and this, that, and the other. And we all think the world's going to end because Donald Trump is president or. Or, or some such like that. Uh, but the truth is, the history of humanity and the history of the world, well, let's just focus on the history of humanity. The history of humanity, yeah, we have little dips, and we have spots in there that are pretty terrible. But for the most part, the world has gotten better, 
year after year after year, whether, you know, it's battling famine and the fact that uh, famine is still a, a factor of humanity in the poorer countries, but it's not anything like it was back in the day. Um, do we fear a drought that's going to kill off wide swaths of humanity like we did, you know, a few thousand years ago? No, not really. Drought's bad for business, but, uh, you know, I don't think we that uh, we're anybody's really in fear of something that's going to kill us all just because technology's gotten that good. So I think if you look back at history, uh, you really have more cause to be optimistic for the future than you do pessimistic. Not something saying something bad couldn't happen. I'm not saying the moon can't explode or an asteroid going to hit the earth. Just like, uh, what was that? Uh, <laughs> what was that movie back in the day? But yeah, I think, I think those, uh, I think those, make good fiction, but I don't think it's the reality. I think the reality is more optimistic. Any last, uh, last minute thoughts, Thomas? The future is like a wave and there are uh, like a big surfing wave and you can either surf with it and let it propel you forward. And it's really fun or you can fight against it and let it tumble you over and over. <laughs> uh, those are basically your two options. There is no avoiding the fact that change is coming and the future is going to become the present. And so why not enjoy it? Why not surf? Why not let it propel you into the future? Um, I experienced being tumbled by waves in Hawaii. And let me say, it was not a great experience. I would much prefer to surf. And I think knowing what's coming and adapting to the changing future is definitely the better way to live your life. It's the happier way to live your life than putting your head in the stand and hoping that you can hold on for dear life to the way things used to be. I like that, Thomas. All right. So we, we do want to know what you think. Uh, feel free to leave us a comment. This was episode 32. So go to Liberty Buzzard forward slash 032 to leave a comment. Uh, and uh, yeah, we want to know what you think. And if there's a topic you would like for us to discuss on this show, uh, if you've been listening for a while, you know, the kinds of topics that we hit, we'd love to get your feedback. If there's something in the news or some question you have that you would like the Liberty Buzzards to pick at, uh, do drop us a line at libertybuzzard.com. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr., I'm Dustin Hammett. And you've been listening to Liberty Buzzard. This episode of Liberty Buzzard is brought to you by Tom Umstadt CPA. Tom has over 35 years of experience helping people like you pay only their fair share in taxes. Don't let the IRS stress you out. Get Tom and his team on your team at TaxmanTom.com.